Well, good morning, Grace. It's a privilege to be with you on this Palm Sunday morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with them, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be taking a look at Luke's account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem of Jesus. Luke chapter 19. And we're going to start at verse 28 and read through the end of the chapter. Let me go ahead and pray for us as we get started this morning. Oh Lord, thank you so much that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And we do worship you, Father. And we do submit our lives to you. Help us to submit all aspects of our lives to you, Father. Now as we go to your word this morning, would you teach us what you want us to hear? Open our eyes to what you want us to see. Enlighten us and change us. In your name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Approach, uh, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their uh, cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you had a problem 
and you went to get the problem checked out, and you found out that, yeah, you had a problem, but you actually had a bigger problem that maybe you weren't aware of. Years ago, when our girls were little, Renee was with them at school one day, and through a series of events as she was running across the playground, tripped and fell, landed really hard on her knee and on her wrist, scraped her knee up really badly and jammed her wrist. And After a few days, her wrist had gotten so bad she couldn't clutch it, she couldn't hold anything, she couldn't turn it. We thought, we better go to a doctor and get it checked out, so... We did so, they took x-rays, and while we were waiting for the x-rays to come back, the nurse said, now where else did you hurt yourself? And she said, my knee, but it's fine. The nurse said, let me take a look at it. So she pulled her pant leg up and showed her the knee, and the nurse went, ooh, not good. What's wrong? It's red, it's pussy, it's infected, it's got dirt in it, and we need to clean it out. And so... She grabbed a nylon brush and a dish with soapy water in it, and she started to scrub. Now, I've not studied medicine, but I I do know that there are places in the body that interact with one another, and if something's hurt here, it affects over here. I had no idea the correlation between a knee and a wrist, because as that nurse started scrubbing on her knee to take that scab off, her wrist started to work again. And she grabbed a hold of the table and she clutched on hard <laughs> as, as they peeled that scab off her knee and opened the wound back up again and cleaned out the dirt and the grime and, and put medicine on it so that it would heal correctly. That's a little bit of what we can see going on in the scriptures we're looking at today. The people have been witnessing for three and a half years Jesus' ministry. He's been teaching them about a kingdom of heaven. He's been performing miracles. If you look at Jesus' life, you will see a variety of areas in which he demonstrates his authority. And they have been witnessing this. He demonstrates his authority over nature. As he takes two fish and five loaves of bread from a little boy and he multiplies it to feed 5,000 men and their families. He speaks to a tree, and it withers to bear fruit no more. He walks on water. He speaks to the wind and the waves, and they are stilled. He demonstrates complete authority over nature. He demonstrates authority over sin. He says to to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And when they question him about how can he do this, he said, to show you I have authority to forgive sins, Paralyzed man, take up your bed and walk, and he is healed. Because Jesus also demonstrates that he has complete authority over our physical being. He heals the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame, the leopard, the paralyzed, the bleeding. Diseases and affliction of every kind he heals. In fact, he even demonstrates that he has authority over death as he raises the dead. Now, in their context, they didn't see his ultimate authority over death yet, but we have. As he said, I will lay down my life, and I will take it up again. He has complete authority over death. He has authority over the supernatural. He speaks to the demons, and they recognize him. They acknowledge him for who he is. What have you come to do to us, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. They recognize it. 
And when Jesus tells the demons to go, they go. And where he tells them to go, they go. He has complete authority over that. He demonstrates his authority over Scripture. As a 12-year-old boy, he's in the temple for three days dialoguing with the religious leaders and the rabbis. And what is it they say about him after that time period? They were amazed at his questions and his understanding of the Scripture. And then as a rabbi, he comes into the temple and he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61 and he reads it to him and he says, Today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. He speaks the Sermon on the Mount to the disciples and the crowd. And we get, when they got done hearing that teaching, Matthew tells us in chapter 7 that they were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he spoke as one who had authority and not like the other teachers of the law. Jesus has been demonstrating his authority, and the crowds have witnessed this. They have seen this in his ministry, and now they see him on a colt, and he's heading towards Jerusalem, and they recognize that he is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, and they recognize this. This is the Messiah, the King who is coming, and they burst forth in praise. Praise be to God, Glory in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they recognize who he is. But the only problem is they don't quite recognize what he's come to do. Because they think, well, we've got other problems here. We, we need a king of Israel. We need somebody to take care of our problem with Rome. And those may have been legitimate problems, but those were not the ultimate problem. They had a much bigger problem. What is it? We have a serious sin problem. And that is what Jesus has come to rectify and to save us from. As you heard, we've been going through the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to go back to Genesis because that is where the problem is introduced. There are many threads that we see through the book of Genesis, but one of the most significant is the problem of sin. And so if you have been with us, this will be a review. If you haven't been with us, this will be a quick flyover of the book of Genesis of what we've studied so far. See, in Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we first find out that God existed before anything of this universe existed. And the second thing we find out is that he created and that we are the crowning jewel of his creation. He said, let us make man in our image, and male and female he made them. So he is the creator, and we are the created. And he takes Adam and Eve, and he puts them in a garden, and he gives them a few instructions. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Tend the garden. Care for it. And eat from any tree in the garden you would like, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. And the serpent, Satan, comes to them and deceives them, and they eat from the tree that they were forbidden to eat from. And instantly, we see sin has entered the human race, and the relationship between man and woman is broken, and the relationship between man and God is broken, and it's damaged. You see, when man and woman were put into the garden, the text says they were naked and unashamed. And what happens after they eat? They see that they are naked. 
and they're ashamed, and they cover themselves. They start hiding from one another. And then we get into the infamous blame game. What have you done, Adam? Not my fault. I didn't do it. It's this woman. It's her fault. And in fact, God, you're the one who gave her to me. Maybe it's your fault. Right? Eve's over there going, wait a second. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. It's the serpent. It's his fault. And the blame game starts. And we don't take responsibility for our actions and start putting it off on everybody else. And when God comes to speak to Adam and Eve, where do we find Adam and Eve? They're hiding. And they're afraid. And their fear may have been well justified. Because there's only two people in human history that have had the privilege of walking with God in pure holiness. And they know what they lost. They know what was broken. And they're hiding and they're afraid. Well, sin keeps working its way out. We get to Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices to God, offerings to God from their labor. And Abel's offering is accepted and Cain's offering is not And God says to Cain, if you do what is right, it will be accepted. And Cain gets angry. And God says to him, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Beware. And uh, Cain gives in to his anger. And he plots. And he says to his brother, come on, let's go out into the field. And he strikes his brother dead. Now, as I've been studying that text a little bit, there's been a question that's just puzzled me. And I'm not going to get an answer to it, unfortunately. But Cain had a problem with God. Cain had a problem with his offering with God. God gave him clear instructions on how to resolve that problem and tells him, you know, this is all you have to do. Do what is right. And Cain goes over here and kills his brother. I'd love to ask Cain, Cain, how did that fix your problem with God? Abel's dead. Are you rectified with God now? But don't we see that even in our lives today where we have problems right here, but we don't address the problem. We go attack somebody else who's maybe not having the problem or getting the benefit that we want. Regardless, the family, the place where we are to be protected and cared for and nurtured and loved is now a place where we're killing one another. And sin continues to run rampant. We get into the next chapters and we read genealogies and we come to this simple sentence, and Lamech took two wives. Well, if one is good, two is better, I guess. Maybe that's what he's thinking. And he takes two wives, violation of what God would commanded. And he brags about killing somebody just for wounding him. And now we're arrogant and we're boastful about our sin. And then we move into chapter 6. And look at these two verses. Verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And as I read these verses, I noticed something. Who is it that's seeing the evil? Do we see any account in here of man saying, I see the evil? What is man thinking at this time? 
Are they thinking that what they're doing is corrupt and violent, or are they thinking it's just status quo? God sees the evil. Now, a a few of you may know, about 18 months ago, I started a period of my life where over 13, 14 months, I had five eye surgeries for damage to my eyes, four on one, one on the other, And as a result of that damage, I have lost the vast majority of my vision in my right eye. What I see now out of that eye is like looking through a fog or looking through a a glass that's opaque that you can see light through and you can see shapes, but that's it. There is no detail whatsoever. This week I was at a high school baseball game and had my grandson with me and he's He's picked up my love of airplanes, and as airplanes flew over, he goes, hey, Pops, look, I see two planes. There's a little one there and a big one over there. And I looked up in the sky. It was a beautiful day with a very high, thin overcast, and I look up in the sky. Okay, I'll take your word for it. I I can't see them. Can't see them anymore. It dawns on me. That's what sin does. Sin takes our spiritual eyes and it fogs them over. And we get to a point in our lives where we just don't see it anymore. We don't see it. And here's the the, the part that unless there's some miraculous healing of my my eye, it's not that I don't see it. I can't see it. And unless we have some... God doing some intervention on our souls, on our spiritual eyes when we look at evil, we can get to a point where it's not just we don't see it, we can't see it anymore. But God sees it. He sees it very clearly. His vision is perfect. And he observes it for what it is, and he says, you are my creation. This is not what I've made you for. This is evil. This is wrong. Now here's the the worst part about it, as you keep going through the Bible, you get to the end of Judges. And what's the last verse in Judges say? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In their foggy, unclear vision, we are now going to determine what is right and what is wrong. We're going to be the judge of that. We have such clarity. And you can see how sin is just running rampant through us. And this is the area, this is the world that Jesus comes into. And this is where he is going to minister. And as he is making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he heads to the temple. And guess what he sees in the temple? Sin. Because Jesus has clarity He can see it. We may think there's nothing wrong here. We're just doing the status quo. But he sees the sin. He says, my house is to be a house of prayer. It is to be a place where we come and commune with God. And he communes with us. It is to be a place where, oh, sin belongs in the house of God. But it's us bringing it to God with repentant, contrite hearts saying, God, forgive us for our sin. It's not a place where we stake a claim and practice our sin. And he says, you have turned my house into a den of robbers. You look at that phrase, a place where people wait for their next victim. A den of robbers. 
Now, Jesus is not being clever with his speech right now. He's referring us back to Jeremiah 7. So turn with me, if you would, back to Jeremiah chapter 7. And while you're turning there, let me try to give you some um, woefully weak, but let's try to put this into our language a little bit. You have a house, and somebody comes to your house. They're not going to go into your inner courts. They're not going to go into your family room, your kitchen, your den. They're going to stay in the outer courts, your front yard, your driveway. And they decide to set up shop and conduct business. And we're going to stay here for a while and do our thing. How are you going to respond? Or let's say during the last political election cycle, they decide that your house is going to be the house where they're going to post all their posters and propaganda of what candidate to vote for and what proposition to vote for, and your house gets plastered with, you know, political signage. What are you going to do? Is there going to be some point in time when you walk outside and go, hey, wait, 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 this is my house. You don't do this here. Well, if we would do that on such a, such a basis, how about the holy God? When his house is defiled and we bring sin into it and just conduct business like it's normal operating procedures in his house. So Jesus refers us back to Jeremiah. Now, I would encourage you at some point in time to read this whole chapter. We're going to skip through it. But notice a few things. First of all, verse 1 This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Verse 2, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 3, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. This is the Lord speaking. He is speaking through his prophet Jeremiah. And this is some of what he says to us. Verse 4, do not trust in deceptive words. We could stop right there. That's good counsel. Adam and Eve probably could have used that counsel. But you know what the difference is between Adam and Eve and what's going on here? Adam and Eve were deceived by an outside party. What's going on here is self-deception. We're going to deceive ourselves. That's how bad sin has gotten. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like if I repeat it enough times, I can convince myself that this is God's house and what I am doing here is really okay. Verse 6. It's the last phrase in verse 6 I want you to catch. If you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm. Folks, we've got to understand that sin grieves the heart of God. But sin hurts us. It doesn't hurt God. It hurts us. We are the ones that are broken by sin. Verse 8. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Self-deception works. Self-deception works. Verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, 
and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Verse 17. Do you not see? Notice all the I language. I pick up on that now. I'm sorry. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? It's a family affair. The children gather the wood. The fathers light the fire. The women knead the, bread, knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Jump over to verse 30. Look how bad it gets. The people have done evil in the eyes, in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnon to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Psalm tells us that our children are a blessing, a gift from God. And we receive this blessing from God, and instead of offering it back to God, we go over here and we actually put them on the altar as sacrifices to our own gods. And you may say to me, well, Kip, we're, we're not barbaric. We don't do human sacrifice anymore. And I would agree with you. But I would fully disagree with you if you don't see that there are many ways in which we are taking our children and we are offering them on sacrifices of the altar of our gods. We have a serious sin problem. It is a serious sin problem. And this is not a problem that happens just in the biblical days. This is our problem. We have this problem. It's in us. How are you doing with anger, with rage, with bitterness or hatred? How are you doing with lying, envy, greed? How's your thought life? Can you imagine if we came in here and our thought life was projected on the screen for everybody? Wouldn't that be a terrifying sight? James says that our tongue, with our tongue, we praise our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. We've been praising our God and Father this morning. How long will it take you before you leave these doors and you're cursing men? Can you make it through the drive home? The drive to work tomorrow? James also tells us, anyone then that knows the good he ought to do and does not do it sins. Are we not doing what God is calling us to do, what we know is the right thing to do? We have a huge sin problem. Now, if you think you're really clean, that's what the Pharisees used to think. They thought they were really clean too, and Jesus agreed with them. They were clean. They were clean tombs. You're like whitewashed tombs. 
beautiful and clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. We have a sin problem. But if that is our problem and that is what, the good news is that that is what God came to save. God has a perfect plan to resolve this problem. And he announced the plan the moment sin came into the world. In Genesis 3.15, while he is pronouncing the curse on the serpent, he said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's announcing right away, this is the verse that this whole week that we're celebrating stands on. He announced it thousands of years ago, and he's saying, look, a day is coming. A descendant from this woman is coming, and he is going to solve the problem of sin. And then he gives Adam and Eve a foreshadow of what that's going to involve. If you remember, Adam and Eve clothed themselves. They clothed themselves because they were ashamed and they used leaves. And it must not have been an appropriate covering because God turned around and reclothed them. But when God clothes them, an animal is killed and blood is shed for them to be properly clothed in God's sight. And he's already giving us the image of what is coming. And then he gives Moses the law and the sacrificial system where they continually, day after day, week after week, year after year, are providing sacrifices to God, sacrifices to God of all types of animals, and particularly an unblemished lamb for the atoning of sin. And Hebrews tells us that those sacrifices were not a final solution. Those sacrifices were to an annual reminder of sin. And he tells us the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities itself. Well, what are the good things coming? It's all pointing to love's redeeming work is coming. It's coming. It's pointing to Jesus. It's giving us a foreshadow of what is coming. And then, as we read this morning, Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. And Christ comes into this world and the angels praise God for it. And then John the Baptist is leading the way and he's out doing ministry saying, you know, there's one who's coming that's greater than I. Redeeming love is coming and I am not worthy to tie his shoes. And one day John the Baptist is out baptizing and he looks up and he sees Jesus coming to him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, look, folks, redeeming love is right there. He's come. He's here. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. And finally, the people are now witnessing his ministry as they are going into Jerusalem in our story today. And they are recognizing that this is the King. This is the Messiah who has come to save us. And they start praising God. And when the Pharisees rebuke, or tell Jesus to rebuke the disciples, he says, look, the angels have done it. They're doing it. And if they don't do it, inanimate objects, the rocks are going to cry out. Why? Because God is worthy of all of our praise, all of our glory, and all of our honor. God's perfect plan is coming to a, a, a final chapter 
He's heading into Jerusalem. But still, they misunderstood. You see, Jesus is not coming to a palace. He's coming to a cross. And he's not going to be crowned with gold and fine jewels. He's going to be crowned with a crown of thorns. And he is not coming to take care of Rome. He's coming to take care of our sins. He is coming to inflict that final blow on the serpent, to crush his head and take care of the sin problem that we have once for all as a sacrificial lamb for the final sacrifice one time. The fatal blow will be given to the serpent and to sin. Love's redeeming work has come. And on Friday, we will talk about love's redeeming work that has won. And on Sunday at the resurrection, we will celebrate love's redeeming work is done. One final thing. I hope you don't miss, and I hope you have seen, but let's look at Jesus is a merciful Savior. We need to see that Jesus is a merciful Savior. If you still have your Bibles open to Jeremiah 7, take a look at verse 13. 7.13. While you were doing these things, so while we are actively in the process of doing these detestable things before God, look at what God does. While you were doing these, all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Verse 25. From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servant, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. God is pursuing, even while we are in the act of defiling his house and sinning against him, he is pursuing us. And then in Luke 13, 34, you see Jesus, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you have killed the prophets and stoned uh, stone those uh, sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Jesus is continually coming after us and striving to reach us and get to us. And we do this to him. And now he's entering Jerusalem in our story and we just simply see, and Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he wept. He's weeping for the sin that has destroyed the relationship between God and man. He's weeping for the religious leaders that are plotting to kill him, for the crowds that are going to say, crucify him. He's weeping for the guards that are going to flog him and put him on a cross, and for the people who are going to walk by and mock him and spit on him, and for Peter who's going to deny him, and for the disciples who are going to run from him. He's weeping for you and for me because he sees the problem and he wants so much to draw us to himself. If you were to go around this room this morning and ask people who have put their faith in Christ about God's merciful saving of their life, 
you would hear a variety of different testimonies of how God has called them over and over and over again, even when we were saying, not now, later, I don't need it. If you are here this morning and you have not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that just the fact of being here this morning is another example of God's patient, merciful coming to you that you could be in amongst God's people, hearing them proclaim him and hearing them worship him, that you could hear his word being proclaimed. You see, the most important question that we need to answer, all of us, in human life, I believe, is the question that Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And maybe this morning, you have not done that before, but you have been investigating the claims of Christ and you have come this morning and said, you know, I now recognize, as Peter said, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God and you want to put your faith in Christ this morning. I'd love to talk to you. We'd love to talk to you. Our desire at this church is that everyone be, become mature in Christ and we would like to help you grow in your relationship with God. I'd like to talk to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you go, I've never even heard that question before. Or I've heard it and I have absolutely no idea how to answer it. Love to talk to you. Love to help point you to Jesus. Love to give you some resources. If you're here this morning and you have trusted in Christ and him alone for your salvation, then you fully understand that as you stand before God in a legal sense, you are justified but you also fully understand that we are in a battle. And as Galatians says, our sinful nature and our spirit are in conflict with each other so that we do not do what we want. We are in a battle against sin. So where is sin crouching at your door? Where, where are you giving the devil a foothold into your life? Where do you need God to take his brush and scrub your soul because it's becoming infected and dirty and maybe we don't even need it, know it. Where do you need God's redeeming love to come into your life today? Love to talk to you. If you need prayer, we'd love to talk to you. There'll be some elders down here in front and in the back over there after the service. If you would like to talk to us, we'd love to talk to you. Love's redeeming work has come. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you cared for us enough that you'd be willing to go all the way to the grave because that's what love's redeeming work does. Redeeming love gives it all. And we thank you that you gave it all. We thank you, Father, that you didn't come to solve our seasonal problems, our current condition, but you came to solve the greatest problem we have, and that's our sin. Thank you for your incredible grace and mercy to come to us, even while we're sinning in front of you, blatantly, even in your house. Open our eyes. Holy Spirit, just open our eyes Make us aware of the sin that is within us. Clear the fog off our vision so we can see as you see. Transform us into your likeness, we pray. 
Amen.